Carol Lacey is a Christian. She tells about a golfing experience she had. It was first time out in the spring, and she three-putted the first green. Now, for, you not, for non-golfers, that's bad. And then on the second green, she four-putted, which, of course, is worse. And a verse from Psalm 91, which she had read that morning for her devotions, kept coming back to her. That verse said, And you shall call on me, and I will answer you and keep you from trouble. So she prayed about her golf game. And as she lined up on the fourth hole, a par three, the shot felt good and went straight toward the hole. And she said, be long enough. Oh, it might make it. it might, it's headed for the pin. And she got a hole in one on that hole. Now, for non-golfers, that's good. That's really good. And she said, my partner, Jenny, and our opponents, Mary and Babes, shouted while I jumped for joy. My first hole in one, I never imagined I would ever be able to do anything like that. And then she said, from then on, it was hard to concentrate, but by the seventh hole, she'd calmed down, hoping she could salvage a decent score. And at the turn, news of her hole-in-one had reached the clubhouse, and everybody was, you know, talking about it, and that got her mind reeling again. So on the tenth hole, she scored a ten, which is really bad, unless you're me, then it's average. She said again, I struggled to calm down, and then at the thirteenth hole, the par three water hole, I reached for my nine iron. The ball flew off the tee, hit the left side of the green, rolled to the right, curving toward the pin. Carol couldn't tell what happened because she was too short, but her partner said, I think it went in the hole. And it did. Second hole in one. Carol fell to her knees, said, Lord, what are you doing? And she said, it didn't occur to me that, that my morning prayer had anything to do with what was happening on the golf course. I was only the second woman in history to two shoot two holes in one in a single round. I had beaten 67 million to one odds. Does prayer work like that for you? If it does, would you see me afterwards? I will golf with you and I will pay your green fees. I've heard a lot of people talk to God on the golf course and it didn't work. Does prayer work? Of course, the Christian answer would, of course, yes, it does. But let's be honest, there's times not much seems to happen. And I think... Well, maybe it's because I'm immature and spiritually weak. You know, James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, effective, and maybe I'm just not righteous enough. But then I read about George Mueller. He's a spiritual giant who ran his whole mission on prayer, and he tells of praying to God for 19 and a half years about a certain request, and it took that long to get an answer. And then others talk about six years and 10 years and four years praying daily for the same thing. I mean, is God that slow and that hesitant? I read about a church in New York City that had a VBS for children, and this was back in 81, and it's a true story. About 200 kids were watching a Christian movie when one of the leaders by the name of Nancy Martinez sensed that the Lord wanted the children to pray. And Brooklyn Tabernacle is famous for their Tuesday night adult prayer meeting, but the children's ministry was still just kind of like our VBS stories and songs and games until that year. And Nancy said, I asked the children whether any of them wanted to come and pray in another room. And about a dozen said yes. And without any prompting, they went to the room and they knelt for the next half hour. They prayed for their families. Uh, and to make a long story short, a Tuesday night children's prayer meeting began and it has continued uninterrupted to this day. Now here's the kicker about it. Nancy said almost immediately we had more children than space. Today we have to cap the attendance. And there's a line outside the door every week as these kids try to sign up to get in for all the places that have been taken. And the meetings last two hours, just singing and praying. And I read that and I thought, could that happen here? What do they have that we don't have? What do they know that we don't know? 
We're in this series called Living Vertically. And the church, you and I, are intended to connect with God. The people of God should encounter the glory of God in a different and more awesome way that only the church can. There should be something special when we gather, a special presence of God. And if we were truly aware of who this God is and that He does connect with us, we would find that everything else is secondary. This time of year, I see some motorcycles for sale. I like motorcycles. And I think, boy, that would be nice. But compared to connecting and experiencing this God, there is no comparison. God is more exciting. I like to golf, but if every golfer knew this God and experienced Him, they'd realize there's no comparison. They'd rather be worshiping God than golfing on a Sunday morning because He is the ultimate good. And in the church, we should be experiencing Him. I think that's why the kids at Brooklyn Tabernacle line up to go to a prayer meeting. They meet God, and there's nothing like it. No video game compares to knowing this God. But too often we are so horizontal in our churches and our lives, more horizontal than vertical. And so I'm wanting to challenge us and challenge myself to live more vertically and not so horizontally, to focus on his greatness and his bigness and his goodness and his presence and his grace, his mission and his word. We need him in every facet of our lives. God is here, just like the song said. He is present right now. Sound? Think about it. The rest of the summer, I want us to focus on living vertically, thinking vertically. And we're going to focus on two aspects of this. That's prayer and worship. And I want you to ask to do something this summer. I want you to pray every day that we be a vertical church and that God's glory fill us. He is the greatest good. He is our greatest need. I walk into this building just about every week and I say, God, would you fill this place with you? Let us experience and taste that you are good. Because once people get a taste of God, there's nothing like it. And second, I want you to pray every day that you will be a vertical person and God's glory would fill you. And you see him in his holy greatness. It will change your life. We were created for him to fellowship with him and walk and talk with him. And when you experience God, you change. Now, you have to do some stuff. You have to be wanting this. You want to pray. You ought to be in the Word and listen to Christian music. I think we underestimate how powerful Christian music can be. So I am praying God's glory to fill this place, not so we can get a buzz, but so we can taste God and be filled with Him and His will. See, when I hear of a church that has children lined up to come to a prayer meeting, that's what I want to see happen here. Amen? What are we missing? What has happened to God's presence? Well, that's what happened to the disciples. They saw Jesus' prayer life and asked, what's he got that we don't? What are we missing? Luke 11, 1, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. They never go to Jesus and ask him, teach us to preach, teach us how to teach, teach us how to cast out demons, teach us how to do miracles. They say, teach us to pray. It's the only thing they ask Jesus to teach them. Why? What was about his prayer that was different? What did he know that they didn't? They knew they were missing something. Now, the disciples prayed. They were raised on prayer. They were Jews. And yet they asked Jesus, teach us. Why, Jesus, is your prayer life so alive and real? What do you know that we don't? 
So how's Jesus respond? Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, and you'll recognize this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Now that's the abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. The full version's over in Matthew. And the first thing that strikes me is how brief it is. 34 words. Effective prayer does not have to be long. In fact, I would say, don't talk so much. Listen. Martin Luther said, the fewer the words, the better the prayer. Wordiness is not necessarily good praying. Listen, meditate, read, listen to music. Let God speak to you instead of you always doing all the talking. Now, what Jesus is doing here is conveying the content when we are talking. And it's a pretty good guide to prayer. Hallowed be your name is praise, adoration for who you is. Just, just shut up and listen and contemplate who he is. Don't talk. Praise him. Your kingdom come. Pray for God's will to be done. You know, people that submit to him. I'm tired of Satan's will being done on earth. How about God's will for a while? Daily bread is your daily needs. He's our provided forgiveness, spiritual protection. You know, lead us not into temptation. It's a five-point prayer plan. Meditate on those. Pray each line. That'll be a good line, good guide for you in prayer. If you don't know how to pray, just pray that. And then Jesus tells a parable, kind of odd, Difficult to interpret. In fact, I struggle with this a little bit. Starting verse 5. Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Got the picture? A man's in bed. A friend has guests. Come in unexpectedly. He has no food. He knocks on his friend's door who is in bed and asks for help. The man in bed says, go away, I'm tired. Verse 8. I tell you, Jesus speaking, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, that's key, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, in this parable, God is the man in the bed. And he doesn't want to get up and help his neighbor. Is that the kind of God you pray to? A God who says, go away, I'm tired. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? You ever feel like that? God's not responding. And so you knock, come on, God, get up. Let's do something. See, that's a traditional interpretation. The parable is teaching us to be persistent and bold in prayer. Keep knocking at the door until you get God out of bed because persistence in prayer will work and God will eventually get up. Really? Let me first of all say God's not stupid. He knows if we really want something, and persistence in prayer is important. He can tell if we're really earnest or if we're just mumbling and saying prayers without any heart in it. So there's a, there's a point we have to persist and keep knocking at the door and, and pray earnestly. So persistence is taught in the Bible, and it may be taught here, but I don't think it is. This text can and I think should be interpreted another way. It's not about the one asking. It's not about us persisting. It's about God. What kind of God do we pray to? And I think the number one reason we do not pray more effectively and more fervently, we do not, and we do not live vertically, our view of God is so wrong. It is so lacking and so anemic and even perverted. So to understand this parable, I think we need to look at it through Middle Eastern eyes. And if we don't, we'll miss what he's revealing. In the Mideastern world and many other third world countries even today, two overriding values are hospitality and avoidance of shame. Now, I've been to the Philippines and Japan a couple times, and those are shame-based cultures where nothing is worse than losing 
face. Shame is not wanting to damage your reputation. You do everything you can to avoid bringing shame on your family or yourself or your village. So with that in mind, here's some observations from this text. First of all, verses 5 through 7 are all questions. All three verses. Our English text doesn't bring that out, but, but they are questions. Jesus is asking, basically, which of you at midnight receives a guest needs to put some food before a guest and goes to a friend and asks for three loaves of bread and is told to go away. Those are all questions. In other words, he's saying, can you imagine that happening? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no, because culturally, you would not do that. You would not. No one in that culture could imagine anyone turning down someone who came for help. Never could we imagine someone in the village saying, go away, I cannot get up, I'm in bed. The rules of hospitality and the rules of shame the person would get up. They, they just knew. So Jesus said, can you imagine Mr. A receiving a guest at night? And can you imagine Mr. A not having enough food, going to Mr. B and asking for three loaves of bread? And can you imagine Mr. B saying, no, my kids are in bed, I'm tired, go away? Can you imagine that? Now, in the United States, I could imagine that, especially in urban areas, you know, not in the Middle East. Why? Cultural values, hospitality, avoidance of shame. It would be shameful to not get up and be hospitable. So, shameless audacity is the phrase the NIV uses. The words there is literally avoidance of shame or shameless. So, shame, again, is not wanting to lose face. Everything you do can avoid shaming yourself or shaming your family. Some cultures, by the way, they don't open gifts at birthday parties because if they did and they did not like the gift, the person who gave it to you would see that on your face and they'd be shamed. So you open the gifts at home in private to avoid shame. Third, that phrase, the avoidance of shame in verse 8, does not necessarily refer to the asker. This is key. Verse 8 is six clauses. Even though he will not get up, talking about the man in bed, and he will not give him bread because he is his friend, all talking about the man in bed, yet because of his avoidance of shame, now NIV says your avoidance of shame, I think that's wrong. Well, let's skip that going back. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. So five of the clauses we know refer to the man in bed, this God. Why would he assume that one clause, the fourth clause, because of his avoidance of shame, has a different subject? It can, but the context seems to point to the man in bed. Because the man in bed wants to avoid shame, he will get up and give food to his neighbor. So the man in bed will think, I'm not going to lose face. I'm not going to hear my neighbors in the morning say, why did you fail to help? Shame on you. So Mr. B will get up to help Mr. A because of avoidance of shame. New Living Translation says, so his reputation won't be damaged. God does not want to be shamed, so he will get up and help the asker. Now Moses understood this. In Exodus 32, God was ready to wipe out Israel. They deserved to die for how they were acting. And Moses prayed and said, God, what's Egypt going to think about this? You say, I'm Israel's God, and you're going to be with them and protect them. If you wipe them out, it's going to go against your name and hurt your reputation and bring shame. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you read phrases like, for your name's sake. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Exodus 36, I will restore you. I will free you. Why? Not because you're so good, but for my name's sake. And that's how Jesus is answering the disciples. They ask, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them two answers. Number one, here's, here's an example. Here's the content, the Lord's Prayer. And number two, here's the character of God. You're praying to God who doesn't want the rumor going around that someone came for help 
and was told to go away. He will get up and answer your prayer. And it's not because of friendship. That's interesting. It's to avoid the shame. He is our friend, but there's something deeper going on. For the sake of his reputation, he will respond. So that sounds small of God to our ears. You know, it can't be right, but, but not in the Middle East. Uh, it made all the sense in the world to them. No one should be shamed, especially God. So Jesus is teaching a parable that shows without a doubt that God will respond to our prayers. He is a shameless father, will not bring shame on himself. And then Jesus says, because you have this shameless father, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He'll come. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks the door will be opened. So ask, seek, and knock. Why? Because we are to persist and wear God out? We got to wake him up? I don't think so. No, because God will respond to our prayers when you ask. You say, but that doesn't work for me. I don't get everything I pray for. Jesus addresses that. Next verse, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish... We'll give him a snake instead, or if we ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We all know a good father will give his kids when they ask for something, when they need it. If they're thirsty, he'll give them a drink. If they're hungry, he'll give them food. God's the Father too, and he'll provide our needs better than any earthly father. He says, you evil fathers give to your kids, how much more this perfect father? But what happens is many of our prayers are misguided and we treat God not like a father, but like a genie in a bottle. Your kids ever do that to you? If all your kid did was ask and ask and ask and all you did was give him whatever he or she wanted, does that make you a good dad? No. You won't and you should not grant every request. But if the child is hungry, you'll give him food. And if he is thirsty, you'll give him a drink. Why? Because he needs those. So the question we have to ask is, what do we need from God? What is the best gift God can give to a blind man? The best gift would be eyesight, wouldn't it? I've actually met blind people told me they didn't want it. They wouldn't want it. To a childless couple, the best gift would be a child, is it? Is that the best? Those with financial problems, the best gift would be enough money and no financial worries. Really? Not according to Jesus, verse 13. The best gift is the Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So what do we need from God? We need more of Him. Holy Spirit is simply God living in us. That's the best gift we could get from Him. And what your kid really needs is more of you, not more of your gifts. And to keep giving your kids material gifts when they need you is bad parenting. And what we really need as God's children is more of God. And when we ask for that, he'll give himself. Do you have a relational problem? Your number one need is not reconciliation. It is God. And, the rec and then the reconciliation will be more probable. So can you imagine Mr. A asking Mr. B for three loaves and being told to go away Absolutely not. In the same way, can you imagine going to God and asking for more of Him, more of His Spirit, His cleansing, and, and being told to go away? No. He will get up and give you as much of Himself as you need. And I'm going to add, as you want. If you don't want God, you won't get Him, of course. 
in a small group, a mother asked for prayer for her daughter. Her daughter was planning on doing some stuff that was not the will of God, making some bad choices. And the mother asked that God would not allow that. Now, what does the mother really need in that situation? The group leader said, I don't think I can pray that, that God would not allow your daughter to make a bad choice. And that shocked the group. And she explained, I think all of us here can understand why you want God to stop her from making a bad choice. I'm wondering, however, whether asking God to override someone's ability to make moral choices is what we should be praying. Instead, let's pray that God will reveal himself to your daughter. Your daughter needs God more than anything else. Then the moral choice will take care of itself. And what's the mother's greatest need? The group leader said, let's pray that God will show you, mom, how to trust him and love your daughter even if she makes the stupidest mistake of her young life. Mom's primary need is more of God, more of his grace, more of his strength, more knowledge of this God. And if mother wants more of that, God will give it. If she really wants him, he will come. If a man is depressed... And others pray for him to be happy. And then at the end of the prayer, he feels pressured to smile and say, thanks, I feel better, whether he does or doesn't. Maybe he doesn't need to feel better. Maybe he needs to learn to cling to God in the midst of suffering. Jesus knew every time he prayed, he got more of God. That's what he most needed. And if you are praying just to get God's gifts, give me this, give me that, If he's a genie in the bottle, you'll never have a good prayer life. Never. What we need is more of him and his spirit living in and through us. So God can answer prayer one of two ways. Either he can change the circumstance or he will supply enough of himself in our lives to overcome the circumstance. He can either answer the petition or give us more of himself. And usually what we want is the petition answered when what we really need is more of him. God changed my wife. That's not what you really need. God changed my parents, my kids. That's not the primary need. The Apostle Paul had a burden. We don't know what it was. He called it a thorn in the flesh. And he prayed fervently. He prayed persistently. He prayed repeatedly for it to go away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, would it be better for Paul to be healed or to have God's grace? It's okay to pray for circumstances to change. We're supposed to. But always with the understanding that our greatest need is vertical, to taste Him. If my kids are facing difficulty, I will pray for their circumstances, but I will also most of all primarily pray that they get more of God because that's their greatest need. So what was different about Jesus' prayers? What did he have that we don't? What, what, what do the children at Brooklyn Tabernacle have that we lack? Why don't people line up to come to a prayer service here? I think it's confidence in the Father. He will respond. It's promised. But I believe this is the main reason we don't pray. We really don't think it does any good. He will get up and give us what we need. So what of God do you need today? Probably not a Cadillac or a Lexus or a hole-in-one. As terrible as debt is, getting out of bad debt is not your greatest need. As terrible as illness is, healing is not your greatest need. 
as terrible as divorce or breakup is. Reconciliation is not your greatest need. He will get up and give you himself if you ask. When people were baptized on the day of Pentecost, God gave them what he said, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, great gift, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you receive Christ, you receive God, the greatest gift. And when you experience God, it changes everything. Now we're going to do something a little out of the box today, just a little. I want you to stand up right now, and we're going to pray. And what I want you to do is be in a posture of openness to the Lord. So I just I want you to put your hands like this, and you can even raise them up like this. I mean, some of you really need him, so I mean, <laughs> we, we all really need him. And I want you to bow your head, and I want you to pray these words after me. Just repeat after me. Let's do this. Lord, would you fill us? We need you. There are sick people that need you. There are people in debt that need you. There are marriages that need you. There are children that need you. There are people who don't think they need you. Would you open our eyes? Make us hungry for you. Give us a taste of you. And taste that you are good. Amen. Let me pray a little more. Father, forgive us for being so horizontal. May we be a vertical church. May your goodness change us, your grace fill us, remake us into your will and not ours. And we pray this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray. Amen.